Every journey begins with a single step. For many, the first step is the greatest challenge. Yet for all, the obstacles, the doubt, and conviction teach us about ourselves. It's these moments in life, a test of our abilities, our mind, when we don't know, but we still proceed. Driven by the unspoken, but ignited by the obsession that yields some of life's greatest lessons and rewards. Join me as we explore incredible stories of leaders forging industries, enterprises, and ultimately, themselves. I'm your host, Adam Geary, and welcome to Capital Class. Let's begin. Classmates, today we are in for a real treat. Not only are we covering one of the more coveted topics of venture capital, we're doing it with an incredible person. Today's episode is a return to one of our original topics from episode two. The venture capital and private equity are unique term, often stated VC or PE, but rarely understood. The glitz and glam of being an investor understates the gritty reality of placing careful and calculated bets on the future state of companies. Generally, long before they've even reached profitability. The industry norms indicate that 54% of these investments fail. 36% return 1 to 3x and the almighty 10%. They return the rest of the fund. To carefully sift through these opportunities is to be a scientist, a futurist, and a realist. On today's episode of Capital Class, we are joined by Ryan Whittemore, partner and chief investment officer at Florida Funders, a hybrid venture capital fund and angel network. Ryan, welcome to Capital Class. Thanks, man. But why'd you wait till episode 30 when you said you started this discussion on episode two? I thought I knew you better than that. Well, you know, we've, we bring a lot of different voices on the show and for me, I felt like now is the right time to have you here with playing both a critical role in some of my very first deals, but also as we enter a junction in the VC market, right? I think you've joined during a period of renaissance, right? 20 years ago, only a very small subset of investors ever even reached PE or VC. Yet today, you know, people invest in these markets from the comfort of their couch. As a fund manager, Give me some perspective. I mean, how has the market changed even in your period of time leading Florida funders? Yeah, I mean, we've had some pretty wild years the last couple of years, um, you know, with COVID and the pandemic and now the Silicon Bank, uh, Valley banking crisis. Uh, seems like there's always something. And, um, you know, throughout that, that pandemic, people were moving around. And so, you know, when I, when I started my career back in 2000 in finance, you know, I, I can very vividly remember talking to my college dean um, and, you know, I, I was telling him kind of what I wanted to do. I'm not sure I really said venture capital, but I really didn't know what it was or even that it existed. And he's like, you know, basically with your degree, you're going to be able to be a, a wealth manager. And so that's what I did. You know, and, and the reality was there are so many other things out there and, you know, no, not many people talked about venture capital and private equity back in the uh, early 2000s. And then, uh, you know, the dot-com boom happened and dot-com bust followed that. And, you know, everybody kind of, nobody wanted to be in VC at that point for a while. 
And, uh, and so, you know, and I, I stayed here in Florida and there really was hardly anything for the longest time, but it's kind of a giant sleeping, um, giant here in Florida. And, you know, we always knew the people that were here that it had all the right elements in terms of a great place to want to build a business and live a lifestyle, raise a family, all those things. Um, but you know, it takes multiple aspects to build a, a tech ecosystem and you have to have each one of those legs to stand on or, or it really doesn't work. And so you need founders willing to start companies, but they need to attract talent. And the talent has to want to come here. And in order for the talent to come here, you got to have capital so they can hire it. So it's like the capital doesn't want to come here because there's no companies and they're skeptical that there's any talent. They don't want to bet on people that can't hire the best talent. So for the longest time, you know, even the companies that we did find that were great, you talk to some of the West Coast investors and they say, well, you know, you might have a good company, but there's no talent there and they can't hire anybody. So we're not going to we're not interested in investing. And then all of a sudden, everything switched in the pandemic and everybody, you know, it finally became OK to kind of be really anywhere and work anywhere. And you had this flood of people that were extremely talented coming here seeing other people who are already here and talented and thriving and saying, wait a second, it can it can be a viable market here. And, and, you know, that snowball just started happening and one led to two and two led to 10 and 10 led to a hundred. And next thing you know, like this is the hottest place to be in the, in the U S for starting a company and for investing. And so you're getting more and more companies coming here every day and you're getting more and more funds coming here every day. And so now you've, you've got this baseline that's kind of, I would say not only sustainable, but but thriving and, and rock solid to where I don't I don't see Florida going away on the map. But that gap between us and Silicon Valley will probably never never be equal, but it's gonna it's gonna continue to narrow. You think the market's slightly over syndicated? And I, I asked this from the lens of at least in education, right, which you know we spend a good chunk of our time. There were a handful that used to dabble in this. And I, not that long ago, I saw a kind of an overview of funds I had never even heard of. I mean, hundreds of them that invest in education now. And I wonder if you're feeling that or if that's just, you know, maybe just a bit of uh, my own lens. Uh, definitely. It definitely depends on the lens. You know, you talk to the founders and there's never enough capital, but you know, a lot of them just don't have either they're not pitching it right or the business isn't right for raising capital and they've got great businesses. There's nothing wrong with it, but they're just not set up for venture capital. So um, depending on who you ask really kind of answers that, that question. Um, but I saw a stat the other day that there's uh, just, uh, just over 5,000 funds now in the U S venture capital funds. And, you know, the majority of that, uh, the, the bell curve, if you will, the, the heavy end of that is going to all be, on the earlier stage. So there's a lot more early stage, you know, seed or seed to series A type of funds. And then, you know, it takes a lot to do a later stage fund. And so the dollars aren't that bell curve. The dollars are much heavier weighted towards the, the big funds, you know, because they're raising billion dollar plus funds. Um, but, you know, the, there's only a select few with a track record enough to be able to raise that kind of money and be able to do those kind of investments. So, you know, there's a there's a there's a select few on that end, and then there's a lot on the early end. Um, so it really kind of depends on where you're trying to raise. Uh, but I, I, you know, I think that 
this market is is flushing a lot of people out. Um, strategies are getting busted. You know, you, you can't just throw money at a wall and hope it sticks and see if that works. I remember a very prominent fund. I mean, we're we're about to do our first close on our third fund, which will be a hundred million dollars, which for Florida is huge. Um, it's a, it's a nothing out in the West coast, but I remember meeting a fund and this guy was in an $80 million fund and a deal that we did all he, the only diligence the guy did was have lunch with his founder and he wrote a $3 million check. And to me, that's just absurd, but you know, out there, it's just a drop in the bucket and you throw in stuff at a wall and see, and hopefully you get a unicorn that writes back to fun. We do things a little bit different and that's okay, you know, either way, but uh, it was, it was pretty opening to me because it was one of the earliest deals I saw and I just, I couldn't believe people are investing someone else's money off of a lunch meeting and that's the only due diligence you're doing. I, like to me, that's absurd. Look, I'll follow on to this. We are the recipient of these investments. Yeah. Right, where a company will be invested in and they'll come to us and say, hey, we took all this money and uh, now we need to do X, Y, and Z. And we're sitting back like, who would invest in this? And at one point, I mean, certainly in 2021, our number one issue for client termination was acquisition, which is like, it's an interesting market. Obviously, we believe in it, but the idea that all of these companies were going to become unicorns, that they were all worth these kind of bizarre valuations, I have wondered if it tarnishes those in the market for the long run, right? That like there are people that are maybe they're playing fast and loose, you know, $3 million checks over lunch. Like what does that do to the industry where someone like yourself, I mean, you're a professional, you're in it. This is what you do. This is your career. Do you feel any of that? Yeah. I mean, it's kind of like, um, I don't know. It's, it's like anything where you start to see some momentum and you start to see, you know, less and less professionals coming in chasing that dollar. And, uh, you know, it's, it can be sustainable for a little while until it breaks and then it's not. And, you know, the people that don't know what they're doing get flushed out and they get flushed out pretty quick. I mean, for us and really for anybody in this business, um, I'm not going to say it's easy to raise a first fund, but if, if you know people and you have a thesis, maybe you came out of a company, um, like you came out of Google or something like that, you're, or a startup that was really successful, there's a lot of people that raise money that way. The question is, can they raise that second fund? And generally, you've got to have some some traction that shows what you're doing and you know what you're doing. Um you know, a lot of people, it's interesting to me because I see so many track records are built like, oh, I invested in Uber and oh, I invested in, you know, Facebook and all this stuff. And you look at what they did and they invested at like the Series F and they got an allocation through somebody else. And it's like they just kind of can put that logo on their thing. And nobody really, a lot of, it's, it's, it's just as much as I see investors that don't do diligence sometimes. Not, you know, we're talking about a smaller subset it's not the majority sure. but you see a lot of lps the investors that do the same thing like especially the big pension funds like it's scary how traditional they are they only want to go with the biggest names but they don't look at like what their strategy is or how did they get into facebook or how did they get into uber and they got in at the latest round at a two billion five billion dollar valuation or hoping it can go to 10 billion or 20 billion in order to make their returns and you know this market specifically which you know i've been 
in business for 23 years now. I, I haven't seen this really since 2001, where you know the the bigger bets, the ones that had kind of made it out of the gate, the horses that are kind of approaching that finish line, all of a sudden you're you're finding out like those are the ones with the most risk because the idiots who bet on it last time, you know, were betting on a $10 billion valuation on a company that's still not profitable yet. And it's just a pure speculation. Who can, who can, you know, be the last one in the chair kind of thing. Um, and, and now all of a sudden, you know, fundamentals take over and they're saying, wait a second, this company that's worth $10 billion that's doing 500 million in revenue and is unprofitable. That's probably not worth 10 billion. And if it is, like, the only reason it's worth $10 billion is somebody's willing to buy it or they can IPO it and investors are willing to invest at that price and kind of keep it there, you know. And uh, I think that floor is falling out of that market, you know. So it's it's compressing the later stage people and flushing out the people that really never knew what they were doing. But we're just had enough of a open door to access to somebody to be able to throw some big name on their cap table and look like they know what they're doing. It does feel like there's a return to fundamentals. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. We've always been that way. Um, it was kind of something, you know, when they, uh, I'll, I'll say, gave me the keys a little bit to the, the process here. Um, I just, at the end of the day, the way I look at it is we're investing in businesses. And we're not investing in fads. We're not investing in, you know, speculation. We, we ultimately have to kind of, forecast where stuff is going and what this business could become but it's it's built off of something you know like there's a reason why we feel strongly about the founder and why we like the business model why we're selecting this out of you know we'll look at 2000 deals to do 1% of those we'll do might do 15 to 20 deals a year so that top 1% like what is it about those top 1% and to me like it's not necessarily that we're saying hey it has to have this fundamental we're looking for like a solid business with some some traction hopefully and something that's pointing to why they'll be able to grow traction sustain and and grow traction but also like looking at the margins and like okay like how does this turn into a business i don't care if they're profitable right off the bat they probably shouldn't be at this stage They, they definitely shouldn't be but can they become profitable and what does it take to get there and how many people are they gonna have to hire and and you know like how much development is it gonna uh, take to get there and then on an ongoing basis and you know is that a sustainable business and is that business going to be attractive to somebody to eventually buy very few are going to ever ipo i mean i don't need, if it does happen fantastic but i never go into it counting on on that as like the likely outcome there's so much damn money in private equity and you know these these big strategic companies that you know you hear about the money on apple's balance sheet and things like that there is so much money out there that it has to have somewhere to go. And we might have not much happen in all of 2023, but, you know, deal makers are itching to do stuff and, and patience only lasts so long, in my opinion. So, you know, as soon as you start to see the all clear sign, you know, down the road, people are going to start doing it and you're going to start hearing about people doing deals and that's going to make more people come out of the woodwork and they're going to start to do deals. And all of a sudden the green lights, you know, you're, you're waiting for the green light and the green, there's already 50 cars that have taken off on the, at the race line. So, um, I, you know, I think it'll be as, as fast as everything kind of came on and, and slowed down, which wasn't a surprise. The Silicon Valley was a surprise, but you know, all the economics around everything, not at all. It shouldn't have been a surprise to anybody, but um, I think 
it'll same thing will happen on the kind of backside of this and all of a sudden you know people are waiting for the all clear sign while a bunch of people are doing business and they're going to realize it's fine you know it's kind of like covid <laughs> a lot of people waited around for the all clear and other people were out doing business you know and just saying come on catch up it's fine yeah for sure i'll tell you graham foreman in my early days of investing gave me two pieces of advice and graham kind of a notable ed tech investor and first he said ask yourself if you're ready to lose money it's kind of very candid and the second which i would also attribute to you was said read venture deals by brad feld and uh jason mendelson and i start with this point ryan because there are the legal logistics um that that book covers, right? And the intricacies of how a deal is structured, right? It's not just to be an investor. Where do you sit on the cap table? How do you address dilution? You know, all, all the more, you know, complicated pieces of a deal. I think what I'm interested in your perspective is like, what are the key metrics that you're looking for, right? I'm not trying to get into the secret sauce of how you built the fund to where you have, but obviously it's more than a lunch. Right. But what, what jumps out to you when you're sitting down and saying, look, this, this to me is interesting. This is something we should be investing in. Yeah. Um, you know, it's a, one of the best things about, um, Florida funders is, you know, we've worked our tails off to get access to a lot of deal flow and the more deal flow you see, it becomes easier and easier to notice a really good company and you still have to be kind of open to it and you have to, you know, be able to look at it with a critical eye and also look at it uh, like, how can this go right? Like what happens if they are right and things, things do go as planned? Like, what does this become? And uh, so you're, you're kind of looking at it from multiple lenses, but the more deal flow you have, the the better off you're going to be because you just start to see it and so many get separated right away. And I think that's probably the, the number one difference between, you know, angel investors, especially ones who are just starting out, they see their first deal. Maybe it's one of their buddies tells them about it. It's kind of like the cocktail party syndrome, you know, and somebody, somebody tells you about something, Hey, I'm getting into this deal. It can sound pretty compelling, but that's like, if that's your first deal, or maybe that's like, the only one you've looked at this month, like it has a chance of selling a a lot more compelling than if you had looked at 250, like I might have that, that month. And to me, like we get referred stuff all the time from people, you know, that are our partners or in the industry or whatever. And and even then, like we call them a a minus a deals and a plus deals. And there's a so many great companies that are a minus or a deals for us. And they might be the right for somebody else, other investor, but, um, for us, we only want to do that a plus deal. And when we, when we see it, we kind of just know it. And so there's a lot of characteristics that come behind that. I'm happy to talk to you about that, but, but a big part of it is, you know, not letting yourself fall into the trap and and we do this all day long so it's like basically our job is looking at stuff over and over and over again deal after deal after deal and things can sound like oh yeah you know that's pretty interesting you know, I, I think that could be a pretty good investment and you got to take a break and step back and be like is that really going to be successful and to me like i'm looking at stuff that's got to have huge upside 
um, you know, I'm trying to limit those zeros that you talked about, you know, like how many are going to go to zero. Like I'm looking at all the ways it's going to go to zero. I'm looking at their competition, which you know, may or may not be a factor. Um, it's not necessarily a bad thing that a huge company's in the space. They're so big and slow. A lot of times you can make a lot of, a lot of dent, um, but like you're looking at the founder and like, do they have the characteristics you're looking for? Does the business model have the characteristics? Like, are they prudent with money? You know, like what have they done to date? If, if I see a company that, you know, they're at $300,000 in revenue, you know, what does that mean? That, that number doesn't mean shit to me. It's how fast has that been growing? If it took them six years to get out of the gate and finally get there. And now they've gone in the last two years from zero to 300, like, there's something not right there. And maybe there's a valid explanation, but 99 out of 100, it's just not the right formula because they should already be showing something taking off. Now, if they just went live two months ago and they've landed a couple contracts and they're at $300,000, like, whoa, now we got a story. You know, like, let's dig in a little bit further there. So, you know, it's it's not any one piece of information by itself. It's like, what is the meaning behind all that information? Um, and that's how, how I have to digest it. You find yourself going home and thinking about deals. Like, have you, you finish a day and you drive home thinking about deals. You go, you wake up in the morning, you're still kind of digesting a deal. Is that normal? Man, I sleep and dream in these deals. I woke up, I told somebody the other day, I was like, and, and this isn't even a deal we're looking at. It was one of our portfolio companies who's struggling with something. And I woke up at three o'clock in the morning, my two-year-old's up. And next thing you know, like all I can think about is their business model and what could it be done? Like, and I'm trying to sort that out. And yeah, I sleep and dream in deals. Like it's hard because you want to shut it off and be present with your family. But it, when you're like to do this right and have the kind of deal flow and process and pace that I expect from my team and our organization, um, you, the only way to do that is to be all in and, uh, and mentally it's, it's taxing, man. It's taxing. I, I try to shut it down sometimes on the weekends and, you know, just completely think about anything but work because I, it's the only way I can function during the rest of the week when it's, it's so intense. I call them waterfalls. Ironically, I had one this morning where I wake up and it is the first thought that comes to mind and I have to write it down. And uh, today's was almost an hour. So then, you know, I'm sure you're like me with dad time. Like my days start much earlier to get any sort of quiet time. And <laughs> I just, it's, and you can't stop them. Right. I got to just ride it. Some stuff comes out and it's like, that's pretty good. Some comes out. I'm like, I didn't think about that. Some stuff I'm not doing that. Right. But at the time you just, you just kind of let it flow. And I find a lot of business owners, uh, leaders like yourself, like this is the norm. Like it's, it's unrealistic that you just walk away and you're like, all right, business, I'll see you in the morning. It just yeah. doesn't work that way. No, nah, I've got a notepad next to my, I, I keep yeah. my phone like with the note section and just, you know, all hours of the night <laughs> putting stuff down, you know, it's the only way I could sleep is by getting it out. Cause if I try to remember it and that just keeps me awake all night long. So completely, uh, yeah. And then the next morning, I'm like, what was that gibberish? You know, sometimes, sometimes I'm like, damn, that was brilliant. You know, <laughs> we speak to a lot of founders and we do hear a lot about fundraising, right? And, and it's probably got 
some people overhype it, right? So hard. Some people maybe oversell it. Like, look, we were, we had some people knocking down the doors, right? We couldn't keep money off, off of the investor table. Right. It was like, okay. And I think my view is that all funds have money, right? And the value is really in the experience that the VC can add to you, right? Cause you can raise for the most part money anywhere. It's, who you want to get married to. And I tell that to every startup company. I mean, like, don't just take money from anybody. You wouldn't marry anybody. And they're like, Oh yeah. Right. Like, huh. If you were raising money, right. If like change hats, right. You're, you are now looking to raise money. How would you do it? Like having sat on now on the other side of what thousands of deals, there's, there's gotta be some commonality of like diamond cut opportunities <laughs> diamond cut that's funny um so uh, yeah i mean there's no like certain formula i'll say and you know if, you, if you're good and you have a really attractive business model you're gonna have more than one investor interested and that's where you know i think you want to be even more and more selective with who you get married to and for others i mean maybe they're not as good or maybe just the business hasn't doesn't have the characteristics yet and, and you just got to take what you can get um and be careful but you know you're a founder you got to do whatever the hell you can do to keep it going and your employees are counting on you to go raise money so like for each person that answer is probably a little bit difficult uh but in an ideal world you've got a bunch of investors interested and you're being able to be selective as to who you want to work with and you're picking people that are you know, got great reputations are going to dig in and help you to the degree that you need it or want it. And, um, you know, and are going to support you. And it's not just support now. It's what are they going to do for you in the future? What about the next round? And do they have, you know, a, a good brand name and reputation that others are going to want to work with them too? I mean, there's, there's some investors you partner with them and nobody wants to work with them. So, um, you know, you've kind of really written it off, uh, at that point, but you know, one big thing, I'd say there's there's if you were doing a couple it, right? different things. Like, what yeah, yeah. would you do, right? If you're starting a business, well, for, first, um, be prepared and have a deck. And that sounds so like, duh, of course. But you know, <laughs> like I see, I told you, I see two thousand deals a year. So many of them are not prepared, or they'll come in and be like, oh, this is my first time ever pitching. What do I do? You know, or they try to dictate the room, like the best thing or the worst thing you can do as a founder is tell the investor, here's how we're going to do it. You know, cause they may like, for me, I've got thousands of deals I'm seeing. So there's a, there's a process to it. Like, the only way we could survive is with a process and we see stuff every day. So when you do something totally outside the norm, it's not like you're trying to stand out at a cocktail party. To me, I'm trying to analyze you in a way and give you the fair credit and ask the right questions. And if you're trying to do like, a conversation some people that works other people like i like to go through a pitch because if i see the pitch it already is allowing me to kind of compare you to a, a mental process compare you to others compare you to like everything that i need to see and it makes me like go through my mental checklist as we're going through the questions and, and if you have that i'm going to be able to get more and more comfortable so one of the first things i would do a there's a lot of different great resources out there as far as decks but have the right deck that really explains it and the, and what i tell people all the time take it to your spouse take it to your your mother somebody who's not in the business um that you trust 
and hand it to them or pitch to them. And if they don't get it, and if they have a bunch of questions like, not sure I really understand what you do or what you're what you're trying to do, like it's it's not right. Like you've got to start like to where you're great idea. You know, a a teenager should be able to easily understand this. Your mom, your mom should easily be able to understand everything you do. And there may be more, far more deep technical things you could go into that maybe that person's just not right to understand. And that's fine. But if they can't get the baseline, then I guarantee when you're trying to pitch the investor, they're not following you. And it's, unless you're going like, hey, we're a, you know, a, a ed tech group and we're pitching to an ed tech fund, that's a little different, right? But if you're coming to most of the VCs out there, because there's only a few ed tech funds at the certain stage that you're at, you need to be able to explain to somebody like, hey, we're going after the K through 12 market. Here's like what our business model is. And, you know, we have to go in through like, I don't know whether you go sell at this at the school level, the district level, the state level. Like, don't assume I know any of that. Just walk me through it like I'm a dummy. You're not going to insult me. And I'll I'll give you signals as to kind of mentally where I am and we'll gradually ramp up and get there. But if I if I don't understand it from the start, and this happens so often, you know, you're 20 minutes into the pitch and I'm like, hold on, time out. Like, what what exactly are you doing? Like, what is exactly the, the business proposition? And you, you realize it's at that moment that, You've been talking for 20 minutes and the investor hasn't followed any of it. And the odds of you getting a yes is like almost zero at that point. So um, if it's me, I'm having a very clear deck that answers, you know, here's the problem I've identified. Here's the solution. Here's why I'm the right group to do it. Maybe here's my background. I came out of ed tech. I realized this is a huge opportunity. I was working for another company. We saw this. They weren't attacking it right. And, you know, I have these industry contracts, uh, contacts, they've already given me a, a pilot. And so we've got some traction. Here's the business model. Here's how we're going to make money. You know, here's what we're going to charge. Even if you haven't figured some of that stuff out yet and you're early, that's okay. Say, here's what we're thinking we're going to be able to charge. You know, we've gotten some feedback from people have tested the waters. And then like that to me, like, oh, okay. All right. This person's really kind of, they know what they're doing. They come out of the industry. They've, they've got a reason why I should be able to bet on them. And that business sounds pretty solid. And, and so like I'm already getting more comfortable. And that's going to form much better questions on my end because you're giving me all the stuff to, to help me understand it. But the other big I thing I never here, even I, contemplated though, Ryan, that people would show up without a pitch that wasn't cogent. I don't mean that in a slight. Like it just – I just assume that that's how it works, but I guess you see so many deals that you're naturally going to see the whole gambit. You would think so, man, but it's, it's sad that most people don't. And then they get, you know, a lot of them are just, they're immature and they haven't been told the right way. So we try to get feedback to people like, Hey, you know, it's not a fit, but here's what I would do in the future. And here's what I would do differently because I'm trying to help as many people as I can. I can't help everybody with a check. But I can at least give somebody feedback so they don't screw it up for the next investor that they talk to. The other big thing is too many investors are like, or founders just think that everyone's going to write them a check and they get an intro to somebody and like they put all their eggs in one or two baskets. Yeah. And when they do that, they're like, oh, what do I do? Like, I don't, I can't raise money. These stupid VCs don't know what they're doing. Like, they're, they're just dumb. Like, Florida doesn't have any investors. I'm moving to California. Like, you wouldn't believe the irrationality of people because they get a no. And the problem is, like, 
if you're a founder, you should be talking to at least 50 investors. Maybe you're really good wow. and you're going to get it on the first, second, third, fourth, fifth try. But the reality is you probably need to be talking to 30, 40, 50 investors. And even after you raise that round, your next round might be in 12 months. You're going to have to start that process six months before. And you better be talking to 50 investors for that round. You know, and don't be talking to everybody. Talk to the ones that invest at that stage in your space that like your type of deals, that invest in your geography, that are going to you're going to be at kind of a revenue area where they're they're looking like it's not trying to get access to every single fund because a lot of them you're just you're never going to be a fit because you don't line up in the box so find out where where you fit in the box and then narrow that down and have 50 meetings and and then your odds of success go way up you know if you you know think about all the all the people in the world if you're trying to find a spouse like you don't go to one bar and quit (laughs) Like the first girl you ever talked to and she's not interested in you, like, okay, so what? Like there's a million other people in the world. There's a billions of people in the world, right? Like it's a matter of finding the right person for you. And it's the same thing in investing. You know, you, you can't just shoot you, one shot and be done. Without, uh, and no names, do people get spicy when you tell them, hey, we're not interested? Yeah, some do. I mean, I think... It's funny, the ones who have been doing it, they're kind of used to it. And I think it, it it's the professionalism and how you handle it. I mean, it's definitely my first couple deals, I probably didn't handle it as well. You know, I was, I was trying to find my own way and seeing how other people do it. And some people do it, have different styles, you know. And to me, like, um, at least for the last four years, let's, let's subtract that first three or four months, you know. Um, I try to give people help and, and true feedback. And what I, the more founders I've talked to, the more they say, you know, like, I just appreciate you telling me like the real reasoning why you're passing, giving me real feedback. I'm a big person. I can handle it and not bullshitting people, you know, like that's the worst. And just, uh, you know, it's, it's just not a fit because of the valuation. And then like, you know, you learn real quick. People are like, well, you know, I know I asked for 20 million valuation, but I'm willing to take five if you'll fund me. And now it's, now it's not about valuation. And you're like, well, it's still not a fit. And I'm like, well, why? You just said it was because of valuation. Like you, you trap yourself as an investor um, yeah. if you give bullshit, you know, because people, smart founders can be able to see right through that. But, you know, also like, what does that do? It doesn't help, you know? And if, if it's truly just not a fit for us, like, there's a lot of times it's just not, you know, but I'll tell somebody, here's the reason why, you know, or here's an, here's another fund that I think might be worth talking to. And, uh, you know, you just do your best you can to, to be real with people and treat them like the you want to be treated. The valuation feels like a game, right? Like I, I met with someone yesterday and said, okay, how are you raising money? And I encourage them to use a safe, right, for where they were. What valuation you come up with? No revenue, no implementation, like $10 million. And I, I, you know, I don't know what to say, right? I mean, maybe. Uh, you know, is that part of your job in the sense of like getting them to see a little bit of reality? Yeah, 100%. I mean, it's definitely my job, but um, it's hard because at each stage there's a weird balance and adventure, right? Like it, before I got into the business, 
to me, it seemed like if I'm going to invest, let's say a million dollars in you and you're just beginning, like I want as much ownership as possible, you know, like how about 50, 50, we'll split the company. I'll put up the money. You get the company. Um, the problem is, is that if it's in venture, you're raising money in future rounds and the future investors want to see that those founders have enough carrot dangling in front of them, meaning ownership that, they're going to want to continue to show up every day and do this grind for seven, eight years and not get burned out. And the one way you ensure that is there's enough upside there for them. So if you take too much equity at any one stage or, or some kind of weird preference or term, um, you kind of make, you shoot yourself in the foot because then you're going to make it really hard on the company to raise money in the future rounds, which means your investment is going to be at risk. And when they run out of money, you know, at some point, usually most of these companies go from six months, 12 months, 18 months, and they got to raise another round. And if you've made it really hard on them to raise another round, now your investment's either going to go to zero or you have to put up the money and keep putting up the money. And so you got to be real careful of not setting yourself up to be in a bad position, setting the company up to be in a really bad position. So um, it's a, it's a, interesting dynamic of how that plays out and so to me to answer your kind of your question is like what's a company worth at the early stages a i'm looking at like what's the upside so i'm, I'm kind of backing into i'm starting with backing into it from where do i think if things go right if things go decent what are they worth and I'll put some sort of multiple on that, depending on the type of business. So we only invest in reoccurring business, B2B SaaS type of business. So if you use a 10 times multiple there and you figure, okay, this company, I think it can get to $20 million a year in revenue. There's a pretty good shot at that. Um, then, okay, these guys can exit at 200 million. Um, and that's probably going to be, it's going to take them at least five years to get to a $20 million run rate. And if they're, if it's going to take them five years, they're probably gonna have to raise another round or two, um, at least to get there. And so to get to a $200 million valuation, you know, and here's all the risks along the way of them going right or wrong. Like, what do I need to come in at now? And maybe they have one customer and that a hundred grand a year in revenue. Like, okay, I can't invest at $15 million or $20 million or maybe even $10 million. Now, if they're at a million dollar run rate, like some of that proof point is already there. Now sure. it's a matter of scaling. So it's like, okay, at a million dollar run rate, I can get to 10 or $12 million valuation because, and now I've got basically to 20 X that return, you know, they're going to go from a million to 20 million revenue. I mean, this, that's a big jump, but they've already proven out a lot of the, the thesis for me. So and if, if, if they come in at a mil, million dollars of revenue right now, nobody's going to buy them for 10 million unless they have some fabulous tech, but they're probably going to be able to sell for five to seven. And if they can kind of grow it over the next year or two, I know they're probably going to be able to get to a place where they're at $2 million in revenue, even if that's as far as they ever get. And at 2 million, they're probably going to be able to sell it for 10 million. So I've kind of figured out, okay, my risk, my downside is, is kind of losing half the money. My upside is really 20 times. Can I get comfortable at 10 to 12 million valuation? Does that make sense? Absolutely. I've never heard it broken down that way. That's powerful. 
you know, one of the things. Yeah, you got to back into it because a lot of people come in and they're like, oh, you know, it's $25 million valuation. Like, well, where are you at revenue? I said, well, we got a couple customers. We think we'll be at $5 million a year run rate by the end of this year. I'm like, okay, where are you at right now? Oh, I'm at 500,000. Like, so you're going to go from 500,000 to 5 million. And we see it all the time, dude. Like, I know you laugh and it's funny, but like <laughs> all the time we see this and it's like, no, you're not you're like a very select few do, but 99 out of a hundred are not going to be able to do that. And so like, you're looking at realistically, where are you? And I'm not paying you a future valuation for your future growth on top of that. That's like a, a multiple on a multiple. I'm going to pay you a multiple on where you are now, but I'm not going to pay you a multiple on where you're also going to be in the future. And that's that's probably one of the biggest mistakes founders do is they try to base the valuation on where they're going. And it's like, oh, that's great. So I'm going to pay you for the future. And you can't, you, there's no room for error. And now, so you've, you know, a year from now, you're finally gotten, everything goes perfect. You've gotten to where you said you were going to be. And I've, sat there and now all of a sudden the company's actually worth what I invested in a year before that. Like that doesn't work. So if you're a founder, man, you got it. You got to be thinking that way in terms of what the investor's doing. And um, I don't know. I just, I just wish more founders understood that because it would make things a lot easier, but well, that's part of the fun too. On the revenue side. And I laugh because now I don't think I've ever seen a pitch deck where the arrow wasn't straight up to the right. Right, like, and the first year sales, like it's a it's on a bar chart and it's really really small. And the next year, like, are we gonna get this investment? The next year, it's like it's a substantially bigger bar. And the year after that, it's there's like huge bar. It's like a hundred thousand, a million twenty. And you're like, wait a second, how can that happen? Like, that's where you come in. I'm like, I I think we're good, but that's aggressive. Yeah, yeah. I th- I think that bothers me less than people that uh, just. A, have no idea about their financials. And, and unfortunately, there's so much, so many people giving advice, some good, some bad. You know, I think, unfortunately for founders, their heads are spinning a lot of times. They're like, who do I listen to? Someone told me to do this. Someone told me to do that. So from me, I like to see, and I've never had anybody get in trouble using this methodology, is here's my, here's my expected where I'm going, you know, like here's the expected forecast for the year and, and next year. Here's where everything goes right. And like it, we could hit, you know, we're going to hit a million dollars in revenue by the end of the year. No matter what, I'm I'm willing to back that. Like there's no chance we're missing a million. If everything goes right, we're going to hit two and a half million this year and, and seven million next year. And if everything goes wrong, you know, we're going to be at about 750,000 in revenue this year and we'll, we'll hit a million five next year, you know, like we're really going to have to miss, but it's kind of the floor. And I think when you do that, you're showing the investor, you've kind of thought of the different scenarios and there's a baseline that I can plan for, but then I can, Hey, I can also see the upside. Like, wow, this is exciting. If things start to go right, this thing could be huge. Um, and I want to see that. So one mistake founders do a lot is they're way too conservative sometimes. And, you know, they'll tell me like, you know, 500,000 in revenue right now, it's, uh, you know, it's just about to be the beginning of June. We're projecting to get to 700,000 by the end of the year. I'm like, really? That's all you're going to get to is 700,000 by the end of the year? Like, well, no, not really. I think we're actually going to hit 1.5, but I'm just, you know, I'm hesitant to share that because I don't want to seem overly aggressive. And it's like, well, 
that's the wrong mistake because if I think you can only go from five to seven hundred, you're you're just not going to be able to grow fast enough to generate the returns we need. And so it's it's this balance of being realistic, but having enough upside um, to show this that your thought process is credible. The reality is you're not going to hit the projections anyway. I don't care. Like if you tell me one number, you're not hitting that number. It's more are you heading in the right direction? And the methodology to get there. Yeah, yeah, for sure. You know, and the, and the more a lot about... thought you've had, like the more you can um, deal with variables that come along. Like, okay, Silicon Valley Bank happens, the economy goes to crap. Like, were you flexible in your thought process to account for multiple scenarios? Okay, we adjust. We're going to have to adjust on the fly. And so, like, the more detail you've given me into your thought process, the more comfortable... I don't know what it is that's coming around the corner in a month from now or six months from now or two years from now, but it's coming. Something's coming, good or bad. I don't know. But how's that going to affect you? You know, ChatGPT comes out. Okay, great. Like, how does that affect your business model? Things are moving constantly, and you got to be flexible. If you have a rigid plan that there's no room for error, you're done. Powerful. Absolutely. There's a, there's a part of the story, Ryan, that we spend a good chunk of every episode on, which is that journey from idea to enterprise. And while you're not a founder, right, or in that sense, your story of how you've reached the apex in your career right to this moment is about fortitude, right? You traverse the path to the top. And I think, you know, some of those early ventures, they didn't play out the way you had envisioned them, right? You did go back to school later in life, and you grinded through those early deals to prove you had the qualifications to reach where you are today. How does that, how does that advise your work today at Florida funders? Like how, how did those experiences shape you as you grow now into frankly, one of the preeminent VCs in Florida? Thanks man. I appreciate that. Um, you know, I, I think part of it has hardened me a little bit to where I don't have sympathy for people that just expect it all to happen and and aren't willing to put in the the work um you know part of me it gives appreciation to the people that, that are putting in the work and maybe give them the break that uh, i so desperately crave for a long time um you know to me like i never gave up i knew what i i love to do and i knew that it was just a matter of getting the right chance and the right door to do it. And and then it was like kind of a F the world mentality. Like I'm going to prove you wrong and, and show everybody who said no to me over the years. And I think, you know, a lot of founders are that same way. And the, the best ones, um, like you can tell me, you can tell them no a hundred times and it, it might, might bend, but it's not going to break them. And it, it can be discouraging, but it's if you know what you're doing and you believe in what you're doing and you really believe in it and and there's a real credibility i mean if i if i had never gone to any sort of schooling and i believed i was going to be a vc like that's just not a, a credible theory right <laughs> but like um there, there's like a backbone there there's a there's a support that says okay i i could be qualified for this maybe i'm doing it a little bit different than some others but I knew the characteristics were there and, um, you know, I, I, I just 
I, I got great advice from Glen Oak and from Mangrove uh, Equity Partners here in Tampa. You know, I was, I was trying to break in in the 2010 timeframe. Um, you know, the, we're just coming out of a recession. Nobody's hiring. And he's like, dude, you just need to do some deals. And if you do the deals, then you have a track record. And the track record is going to speak for itself. And no one can tell you no after that. And that really resonated with me. And, um, and I knew I wasn't going to just be able to do that. Like you can't just like turn it on one day and start doing deals. You got to, there, there's like a, a baseline there. And I had, so I kind of developed a plan to get there. And, um, I, I ended up going to law school. Uh, I was, I was working on a very complex deal to acquire a distillery out of bankruptcy. And I, I realized at that moment, I was kind of humbled because I said, you know, I really don't know what I'm doing on this portion of it. And I may, I may know how to do this part and this part, but like, I don't know how to do this third part. And this third part to me, like, damn, if I can figure that out, I'm going to be unstoppable. And kind of the worst case is I'll have this other education where if maybe, maybe venture really is never going to happen for me. At least I got a backup plan. I'm not just, you know, pedaling the street corners for, for an opportunity. Um, and you know, maybe, maybe my dream's just not going to happen. I, I never gave up, but I had a backup plan. And so, you know, I got more and more into it and I, I took a very different route and people, you know, I'll definitely say there was eyebrows raised when I was going through law school, like, wait, you're not going to work with your dad. Your dad's one of the premier trial lawyers in the entire state of Florida. Like, what the hell are you talking about? And I was like, I've got a plan and this is my plan and I'm going for that plan. And if it doesn't work out, then we'll see what happens. But I just, you know, I had had a plan and I stuck to that plan and I just kept grinding away and, uh, got, got a few chances that weren't exactly what I wanted, but I took those opportunities and, and ran with them, you know, as a sponge and learn things that, you know, other people don't and people that go maybe the traditional route. Um, I think that's great if you can get in and you take that and run. I learned it through a different way and it gave me a different skill set that frankly gives me a different lens. And I think is why it allowed me to to look at things differently and, and do things a little bit differently and challenge the status quo. I mean, honestly, this business is, has a lot of lemmings and, uh, that's never been me, my personality. You look at the, the very best, the Peter Thiels of the world, they're contrarians at heart. And, uh, you know, I, I think that's been a blessing to me is not being able to go maybe the traditional route and thinking the same way that others do it. You got to be able to see things a little bit differently for good and bad. You know, sometimes it's a, it's a no when everybody else is saying, Hey, this is a great deal. Right. And, uh, or it's it guys, I know this, there's a, there's a, there's a lot of reasons why this might not be the right deal on the surface, but it, this is, this is the reason that we need to make this bet. And, you know, the best part about this business is at the end of the day, <laughs> there's a very real measurement of it. And you're either going to be good at this business or you're not. And, uh, you know, there, there's no bullshitting here a couple of years down the road, because if you're if you're really good at it, your track record's going to show it. And if you're not, your track record is going to show it. So uh, you find out pretty quickly whether or not you got you can make it. How do you take inventory of progress? Right? Like, I don't mean money. Like, how do you think about when you reflect back, even in the last two years, like, what's moving the needle for you? For, for me or for, yeah, a for you personally? Um, that's a great question. Uh, 
you know, I, I think obviously I've got our, our KPIs and things like that. And, you know, how many deals are we seeing? And, you know, a big thing for me was kind of the making sure the reputation of Florida funders, how we treat people is there and, and my reputation. Like at the end of the day, like a lot of times we're all at will employees. So like, I want to make sure that everything I do and everything I do in life, I'm, you know, living up to the family name and uh, treating people right. I want to be able to look people in the eye. And, you know, when I look at this business, I tell 99 out of every hundred people, no. And that's, a, it's a lousy feeling in a lot of ways. And the only way I can, I can reconcile that personally is to treat people right. And it feels good when you go in, cause it's hard cause it's a small community. You know, you go into embarks or something like that. And there's a lot of founders in there that are working their tails off and doing a great stuff in order to build a business. And a lot of them I've told no to, like, it's just not a fit. And so the only way to, to do that and, and is, is to treat people right and hopefully help them along the way, even when it's, you know, it's not necessarily an investment help, but it's other ways you can help. And, um, you know, I look at founders and if they'll refer stuff to us, like that's progress to me is, people respect the job that, that I do and that we do here. And they're saying, Hey, I want to work with those guys. Those are good guys. And we, and we get other firms calling us all of a sudden, like the, the phone didn't ring as much when I started here. And now, you know, like it's not a week goes by that there's some firm from the West coast or New York or whatever that's saying, Hey, we heard a lot about you guys. And, uh, you know, we want, we're going to be in town. We want to meet you. We look really interested in one of your portfolio companies. Like that is the validation that is really exciting. I mean, my favorite company right now moved here to the U S from Australia and we're like, how the hell did you find us, man? And he's like, well, I was looking and I might, I was thinking about either Silicon Valley or Austin or Florida. And every time I looked at Florida, like you guys name just kept popping up. And so, you know, and it was like nothing but good stuff. And I reached out and and the best thing is being able to say, not, hey, go talk to this founder and see if there's some credibility, you know, like they'll validate what we do here. It's here's our portfolio. I don't care which one you pick, but here's the ones that I've worked with. You know, I can't speak for the ones that I, that were kind of done before me. Right. But the, the 80 deals that I've done since I've been here, I don't mind saying, hey, go, go pick any one of them. And if you talk to any one of them, talk to two or three. And whatever they say, like, I feel confident they're going to tell you good stuff about working with us. And that, that to me is the measurement. Look, I'll attest. I met Florida funders while you and I were working together. And I can remember mm -hmm. talking to you about them. And it was like a, it was a cool guy, <laughs> you know, Tom. And I'm, and I met this other young guy, Saxon, and they were I'm sure there was more to it, but those are the people I met. And it was a small op in Tampa. Great name. And they were really talking about things that I historically had put into the market of Silicon Valley. And maybe just a lesser extent, New York. And this was conversation happening here, right? And then did my first deal. I was like, oh, wow. Like, we're, you know, this is, this is real. Uh, and to see the progress made. You know, when I'm in Miami and people are saying, oh, Tampa, Florida funders, you know, when you're credibly being spoken about in Tallahassee, I mean, it's, you're, you're making a wave. I know you're a part of that wave, but, uh, it's, it's been an incredible journey to watch. Ryan, what a fantastic episode. 
we get everybody out of here with a fast four and just rapid answers, right? All right. As an entrepreneur, which you, which you are, right? What trends are you watching? What excites you? Oh, <clears throat> we froze. You're good. Okay. Um, man, uh, the, the job I do, it's never about what excites me. It's about what scares me. Um, and that's the way I, f- I feel like I'm better. So I'm going to answer not what you're asking me as usual, but uh, I think this the upcoming election next year is going to create a lot of noise, and there's going to be a lot of things happening uh, domestically and globally. And I don't think we've heard the last of some of the banking stuff. I don't know if it'll be as bad as everyone thinks, but um, I think there's just a lot of a lot of noise over the next year and a half. And I think that you know it it's going to be um, batting down the hatches a little bit and be smart about how you're deploying money and whether that goes for funds and for founders. You know, be conservative, grow, don't stop growing, but be smart. Don't be stupid. One place in the world everyone needs to visit. Man, I mean, I'm obviously here in Tampa, and I'm partial to that. I've always kind of felt that way. But, um, you know, locally in in Miami, like, I'll just say for the spirit of this, this podcast, if you're a founder or an investor and you haven't been down to Miami yet, like, at least go check it out and see what's happening there and you know, it may not be the right place for you, but it's it's pretty sticky. And I'd say most people I see are not getting that return flight home. They're, they're buying a place, buying, renting an apartment. and it, It's a it's a sticky place, man. Once you're there, you, you don't get out. Greatest area of growth for you in the coming year? Uh, we've got this big fund three. So um, if, we, if we can raise this fund three, there's not very many $100 million seed to Series A funds in the Southeast, let alone Florida. Um, and so that that's a big mark for us to hit. And, you know, there's no stopping all the companies that are coming here. I know we can find the best companies. You know, it's just how much money do we have that we can put in them. And over time, there's going to be amazing returns coming out of what we're doing. It's just, you know, there's, there's some patience required there. And it doesn't happen overnight in what we do. This is not a, you know, invest in... Hey, good news. Last month, that company, we put it in a 10 extra money. Like it just doesn't work that way. But, um, if people give us a chance and some time, it's going to be unbelievable. Favorite podcast that everyone should be listening to. Uh, well, well, other than this one, of course, uh, <laughs> I, I, I like the, you know, Jason Calacanis. Um, okay. I think I did the all in podcast. I, those guys, I like the fact that it's not just all about venture, but they're really intelligent and, and they're feisty. They think about a lot of different things, but they, I think you have to be able to accept other opinions sometimes and think mm-hmm. deeply about what's coming down the pipe. And if you do that, you can be more prepared. And uh, they challenge my thinking a lot. And I, and I like that. Ryan, thank you for sharing an incredible story. We really loved having you on the show, and yeah, thank you so much. Appreciate it, man. Enjoyed it. Now let's finally get that golf game going that we've been talking about. <laughs> Seven years in the making. It's time. 
have a good Memorial Day, buddy. And thank you to all the servicemen, men and women out there that uh, lay it on the line for all of us to do what we do. Um, man, that, that's the that's the ultimate thing right there. It's people, what people do for this country. So appreciate it and have a Memorial Day. Thank you for joining today's episode of Capital Class. If you're interested in joining our next discussion, subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or any of your favorite podcast platforms. Capital Class is a venture with the Strategus Podcast Network. To view the entire lineup of shows, visit strategusgroup.com. I'm Adam Geary. Class is closed. <laughs>